Happy Reformation Sunday. Did you know that it's Reformation Sunday? Every Halloween is a double holiday. Uh, One is better than the other, in my opinion. Reformation Sunday is my favorite time of year. Um, And as many of you will come to know, and as many of you already do know, maybe just from talking to me, I'm a Reformation nerd. I love it. I read about it all the time. Um, It's like a hobby. It's great. And so every opportunity that I get, especially in a sermon, to talk about the Reformation, I'm going to take. Our text today is in 1 John, of course, and our text is all about authority. 1 John chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. We'll read that in a second. There's an argument to be made that the Reformation is all about authority. Now, the Reformation's about a lot of stuff, right? Uh, it's about justification and the correct understanding of the gospel. It's about joy and having joy in salvation. It's about assurance and knowing that we can be saved. It's about grace, but it's also about authority. There's one major figure, right? We've talked about him this morning a little bit. We sung one of his songs already. There's one major figure that we point to as the guy who kind of set off the Reformation. Can I get a hand? Anybody know the name? Martin Luther. Martin Luther, he's, he's kind of the turning point, right? Um, but there's a bunch of guys who came before Luther that believed similarly to him in a lot of things. And, and one of the main issues at stake in the Reformation, like I've said, and, and an argument can be made that it is the main issue was this. It was, it's a question. What has ultimate, final authority over life and doctrine? That's a great question. Because how you answer it actually determines how you live. And we may be tempted to say, well, Jesus Christ is our ultimate, final authority over life and doctrine. Or, the Holy Spirit is my only authority. Okay, fair enough. But which Jesus? Whose Spirit There's really only three options to those questions. You could say that it's Jesus as defined by you, Jesus as defined by someone in charge, like a pope, or third, Jesus as he's revealed in the scriptures. Okay, so the Roman Catholics believe and believed uh, in the second one. Number two, Jesus as defined by someone in charge. In fact, they rejected the first option, Jesus as defined by you, which is good. They believed, though, that the church ultimately had final authority over life and doctrine because they only had the right to interpret Scripture. Now, they don't believe this anymore, to be fair, but that's what they believed during the Protestant Reformation. And the Protestants rejected the first and second options, Jesus as defined by you, and Jesus as defined by someone in charge, like the Pope. So men that came before Luther and men that came after him all believed this, and we call them the Reformers. John Wycliffe, Jan Hus, Martin Luther, Holdrich Zwingli, John Calvin, among many, many others spanning many countries in Europe. They protested, this is what it means to be a Protestant, they protested the Roman Catholic claim to authority. So, 
If you are a Protestant this morning, and as you can tell, I proudly am, you still are part of that protest, the Roman Catholic claim to authority, right? They believe that the scriptures alone were the only final authority for life and doctrine. We in the EFCA, we stand proudly within that tradition. Praise the Lord. We are Protestant, which means we protest the Roman Catholic claim to final authority, and we believe that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. And we confess that the scriptures alone is how we define each one of those things. That's the Reformation in a nutshell. We are part of that. And we're celebrating it this morning, amen? Amen. Amen. Now, most of us, many of us, know about the disagreement between the Protestants and the Roman Catholics. There was a third group. Well, there were many other groups during the Reformation, but I'm going to say that there's a third group because it's really helpful. I'm going to focus on one other movement that happened at the same time as the Protestant Reformation. There was a guy named Thomas Munzer. He was a priest and a scholar in Wittenberg, the same small town where Martin Luther nailed those 95 theses to the door of the castle church. Same town, same school. He taught and pastored there. He believed that the scriptures were helpful, but that true knowledge of God really came from your experience with the Holy Spirit. Scripture wasn't the final authority for him. Okay? Munzer was a mystic, a spiritualist mystic, and believed that God spoke directly to people through different mediums, whether that be nature or dreams or visions, and yes, even sometimes scripture. And it didn't matter if that revelation lined up with God's word. All that matters was your experience with God. And he was radical, and he had a lot of people follow him. Thomas Munzer and his followers, they believed that Jesus was ultimately defined by themselves and their own thoughts and opinions. And by the way, Thomas Munzer on what he believed was the leading of the Holy Spirit, helped start what's known as the Peasants' War, which led to the deaths of over 100,000 people. In the book of 1 John, John seems to be dealing with people who left the church and who are convinced that they had special revelation from God. And as we've seen, they believe that they, they didn't need to line their faith or life up with God's word. So in short, they were a lot like Thomas Munzer. So we're not really dealing with the Reformation between the Roman Catholics and the Protestants in 1 John. It doesn't line up too closely. But it lines up with that side, which I find really interesting and really helpful. So let's open up to 1 John chapter 4 and read verses 1 through 6. 1 John chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. I'd invite you to stand with me in honor of God's word as we hear it aloud This is to show our reverence, because this is the word of the Lord. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have come out into the world. And by this you know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and is now in the world already. 
Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. And by this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Let's pray as you're seated. Lord, as we come to your word, we pray that you would give us insight and understanding. And above all, we pray that you would help help us to mold our lives around your word, that we wouldn't change or shift your word to fit our lives, but that we would change our lives to fit your word. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. John says, test the spirits. This is a charge to all Christians. It's one of his only commands in the book. Test the spirits. Last week we read 1 John 3, 24, which I mentioned was going to be a bridging text between last week and this week, which says this. And by this we know that he abides in us, by the spirit whom he has given us. The Holy Spirit bears witness to our salvation because he teaches us and influences us on how we can best be loving one another. Remember last week, that was what it was all about, loving one another. We're commanded to do just that. And we can have confidence before God when we love one another in deed and truth. And we can be confident that we love only because we have experienced the ministry of the Holy Spirit on our hearts. The love of God has been revealed to us. But it begs a question. What if there are people who claim to have the Holy Spirit and teach something new or live a different way? John says in verse 1, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. Okay? So not every spirit is from God. Some are associated with false prophets who John says have already gone out into the world, meaning they are amongst us. They are there. They are presence. Before we go any further, I think it's best that we understand, though, what John means by spirit. And this is another example of John using a word in different ways in the same passage. So when we read the word spirit here in 1 John chapter 4, 1 through 6, John is talking about the activating impulse of human behavior. I'm going to say that again. When he says the Spirit, he's talking about the activating impulse of human behavior. Okay, so it's the trigger that sets off the gun, the spark that lights the fire, okay? It's the base point from which people act. That's what John means by Spirit. And that can be either the Holy Spirit, as it should be in every believer, Or as we'll see, it can be the spirit of the world and everything associated with the world. So again, John says, don't believe every spirit. He's referring to people who operate from different starting points, either the Holy Spirit or the world. So how are we to know if these teachers are truly of the Holy Spirit? How do we know if we should listen to them? That's a very practical question right? Something that we should ask ourselves all the time about people that we're listening to. 
because we don't want to make the mistake of wasting our time with a false teacher who's teaching from the starting point of the world. We don't want to waste our time. The world is separated from God and it's dead in sin. We want to make sure that the people we believe and, and listen to are operating from the starting point of the influence of the Holy Spirit. Otherwise, we'd be doing the opposite of what John commands here. We would be believing every spirit. We would be gullible Christians. John gives us two ways that we can know whether someone is of the Holy Spirit or is of the world. First, the person must have the right confession of Christ. The right confession of Christ. Verses 2 and 3 say this, By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. What we believe about Jesus matters a lot. John doesn't say that we can believe anyone just simply because they confess they believe in Jesus. That's actually not specific enough, right? Which Jesus? Muslims believe that Jesus existed. They believe he was a good teacher. In fact, they'd say he was a prophet, but they reject the idea that he is God incarnate, nor do they believe that he died on the cross. That's not the right belief or the right confession about Jesus. We can know that someone is of the Spirit of God if they confess that Jesus Christ came in the flesh. If you're an underliner, a Bible underliner, you should underline that. We should confess that Jesus Christ came in the flesh. This is absolutely necessary. They must believe <clears throat> that Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man. And I want to be clear that this isn't just some small point of academic theology. This is worth spending time on. John's saying that unless someone confesses that Jesus Christ came in the flesh, they are a false prophet. And there is no benefit to listening, listening to them. Those who do not confess that Jesus came in the flesh are not from God. In fact, he gets more extreme. He says they are of the Antichrist. That's no small matter, right? We've already learned that Antichrist is the lawless one. There are those in the world with the spirit of the Antichrist. That's been a, a topic in this book so far. And through the guidance of the Spirit and through the work of many faithful men, we were given the right confession about Jesus Christ. It's no small matter. What we believe about Jesus has eternal consequences. So it's best that we take it very seriously, right? We must be very precise with how we talk about Jesus. So let's do that this morning. Let's get precise. The first several centuries of the church saw many controversies about who Jesus was. Many controversies. Several hundred years of them. And they resulted in good councils and creeds that helped us define who Jesus was. And if I could be even more precise than that, they helped us search the scriptures to know what they say, and they summarized them correctly through the guidance of the Holy Spirit. And these were faithful men who loved the Lord. And one of these confessions or summaries of the faith was 
the Chalcedonian Creed. The Chalcedonian Creed. It is the greatest example of orthodox Christology, or the right teaching about who Jesus Christ is that we have outside of the Scriptures themselves. Like I said, they're a great summary of what the Scriptures teach on the subject. Now, because it's Reformation Sunday, I was very tempted to read the whole creed to you. I'd like to do that. And you might benefit from that, uh, but don't worry. I won't. In summary, the creed confesses that Jesus Christ is to be acknowledged as two natures in one person. Two natures, human and divine, in one person, Jesus Christ. These natures human and divine, should not be confused, which means they're not the same. They're not changeable, meaning the two natures don't blend together. However, they're not divisible, right? They make up the one person, Jesus Christ. Jesus isn't two persons in one body. He's two natures in one person. And they're not able to be separated. Jesus now and forever will always be fully man and fully God in one person. I know that's a lot of information in many terms. And I want you to come up and talk to me after the service if you have any questions. I invite you to do that. Be a great conversation to have about Jesus. But trust me when I say what we believe about Jesus matters a lot. And now, we need to be humble. And we should never think that we can know everything about God. That's not what John is trying to say, and it's not what I'm trying to say. Rather, We need to be precise. It is right to confess that Jesus Christ came in the flesh. It's right here in the scriptures. And it's right to confess that he's fully God and fully man. Because we don't worship some ethereal being that we don't know at all and who we're just guessing about. He has revealed himself to us in human language, right? That's what we believe as Protestants and evangelicals, right? Right? And we need to make sure we pay very close attention to what he said to us. There were those in the first few centuries who believed that Jesus didn't really have a human body. There were those who believed that Jesus was some type of hybrid or a demigod between God and man. There were those who believed that Jesus was really just God in most ways, but put on human flesh like a puppet. All of these were incorrect, and they were dealt with. But there were many reasons why people held on to these views, and that's why it's so wonderful that the Spirit led the church toward agreement on these matters throughout time. Praise the Lord. We did not just appear in time as Christians. We've had 2,000 years of beautiful history that we are in the stream of, especially in the EFCA, and we should celebrate that. Those are our brothers in Christ who we will see in eternity. God is faithful, and he is good to those who seek him and his truth. Amen? And why does it matter? Why do we need to use precise language? Well, we want to make sure that we represent Jesus Christ truthfully, right? As we've already seen. We don't want to be lazy with what we believe, and so assume things about God that aren't true. The danger there, if we just assume and never get deeper than the milk, as the writer of Hebrews has said, the danger there is that we start creating idols in our minds 
about our assumptions about God. So we shouldn't be lazy. We should dig in deeper. But second, if Jesus isn't fully God and fully man, if he did not come in the flesh, then salvation is impossible. Jesus must be fully man to represent us in his death. Only a man can die for the sins of man. But he needed to be a perfect man, right? Only a perfect man could die for other people's sins and not his own. And only God is perfect. So unless Jesus is fully God and fully man, our salvation would be out of the question. Praise the Lord, then, that Jesus is both fully God and fully man. Praise the Lord. Amen? Thank you, Jesus. Because of that, we can draw near to the throne of grace to find help in our time of need. Amen? Now, we don't know which false teaching John was specifically dealing with here in in 1 John. And maybe these false teachers believe that, that Jesus didn't really have a body. That's one interpretation, one theory, that these were an early form of of those who believed later on that Jesus just kind of looked like he had a body. Maybe. And it seems likely because John stresses that we must confess that Jesus came in the flesh. Or maybe these false teachers that, maybe these false teachers taught that Jesus wasn't really the Christ of God, that he didn't really come from God or was God, because John stresses that we have to confess that back in chapter 2, verse 22. Now, no matter what the exact case is for John, I want you to see that the right belief about Jesus has eternal consequences. If we don't get it right, we become like the Antichrist, the spirit of the Antichrist. Especially if we should know better and don't get to where we need to be. Look at verse 2 again. Every spirit who confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, is from God. So it's really important. It's definitional. What does it mean to be from God? It's got to mean the same thing that we read earlier in chapter 3. It must mean that we are children of God. God's children then are careful to have the right confession about Jesus. They believe correctly about him. And it's by the Holy Spirit in them that they're able to do this. The Holy Spirit renews our mind to align us with the right teaching about who Jesus is. Again, praise the Lord. Because if he didn't do that, we would be lost. We would stumble about. We need a lot of help here. But more importantly, those who claim to teach God's word, remember we're dealing with false prophets and teachers here, those who teach God's word must have the right confession about Christ. John wants his readers to be able to discern false teaching from right teaching. And a very direct way to do that is to see whether or not they believe correctly about Jesus. It's the same for us. Those teachers who have the Holy Spirit will be careful to properly understand and confess the incarnation. What they believe won't be willy-nilly It won't be like Thomas Munzer, who claimed to have all the answers without God's word. It will be thought through. It will be precise. Those who are from God confess Jesus Christ came in the flesh. 
That's the first way we can know whether or not someone, specifically a teacher, is from God or not. And second, they must be aligned with the scriptures. Let's reread verses four through six. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Verse 4 is a very well-known passage. It's brought comfort to millions of Christians throughout the ages who struggle with temptation and an enemy who is constantly seeking for our demise. And it's certainly true that he who is in the world ultimately refers to Satan here, Satan and his demons. But let's take a step back and look at this passage in the context of 1 John as a whole. We've been told thus far that there are those who claim to have the Spirit, but who do not confess the incarnation of Jesus Christ. And these people have the spirit of the Antichrist. And in verse 3, John says they are already in the world. The world knows and embraces the spirit of the Antichrist. In chapter 2, verse 22, we learn that the Antichrist is he who denies the Father and the Son. In chapter 4, verse 2, God even more specific, right? The spirit of the Antichrist is they who deny that the Christ came in the flesh. But John wants to reassure his congregation. He tells them that they are from God. And if we connect this with verse 2, it means that his congregation confesses correctly about Jesus. They confess that he came in the flesh. Okay, so back to my first point. Do you confess Jesus came in the flesh? That should give you assurance. That says that you are from God. Through this confession, they have overcome those who are in the world, the false teachers. John's congregation has the truth, and they don't need to be afraid of false teachers. Why? Because he who is in them is greater than he who is in the world. God is in them by the Holy Spirit. This is clear by their confession of Christ. But the spirit of the Antichrist is in the world. And this spirit is nothing less than the enemy, Satan. So what comfort is there for us in this passage? Great comfort. Great comfort. For one thing, I can trust that the Holy Spirit will not let me fall to the spirit of the Antichrist. God is greater than the devil. Right? They are not equal opponents. It's not a yin and yang thing. God will always win. He's the creator of the universe, savior and king over all things. And by comparison, the devil is puny and little. What is there to be afraid of? The words of Paul ring true. We said them and confessed them together this morning. If God is for us, who could be against us? Amen. That's true. There was no one who can beat our God. He always wins. He is already triumphed over evil, and those who confess Jesus Christ can rest assured that he has conquered over the enemy. Praise the Lord. On top of this, we don't have to be afraid of false teachers. We can trust that we have the right teaching that we need, because the Spirit 
has brought us into alignment with God's word. He who is in us, the Holy Spirit, has overcome the spirit of error and the spirit of the Antichrist. One amazing aspect of our salvation is that our minds, even our minds, are renewed by the Spirit. And that's a great comfort. We need our minds changed. We need it done. We need it changed away from the world and onto Christ. Or else we'll be easily led astray. And we can rest assured that the Spirit is doing this. He is actively doing this right now as we hear the word preached. And he does it when we read his word and spend time in prayer. And so if we are neglecting that, we're going to be in trouble. A renewed mind comes by the gift of the Holy Spirit through the ministry of the word. So we should hunger for that, right? We should hunger for God's word. But here rises a good question to ask yourself. Do I think more like the world or do I think more like Jesus? Look at verse 5. They are from the world. Therefore, they speak from the world and the world listens to them. Remember, the world for John is the realm of demonic influence that opposes God. That's what he means by world. Maybe you've noticed that comes up week in and week out. It's a common thing in this book, God opposed to the world. The world is the domain of darkness. It's not creation. It's not culture. It's the demonic influence that opposes God that's in the world. And these false teachers belong to the world. They live in that domain of darkness. Okay, so to go back, that's the base from which they speak. The activating impulse for their teaching is the world. It's not the Holy Spirit. Consequently, the world hears them and the world likes them. Remember that. We'll return to it in a second. Verse 6 says, We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. And by this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. The two spirits are opposed. The spirit of truth, which is the Holy Spirit. He is the opposite as the spirit of error, which is the spirit of the Antichrist. All of these are connected. Verse 6 gives us another helpful tool to use in order to discern whether a teacher is of the spirit, the spirit of truth specifically, or the spirit of error, the spirit of the Antichrist. John says, whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. Now, there may be a temptation here to think that that's a really cocky statement. It's really arrogant of John to say that. Because if I stood up here and I said something like, you know, you are only in right relationship with God if you agree with everything I say, you'd be deeply offended, as you should be, right? I have no place to say that. By what authority could I say that? We can't individually claim to have special revelation from God. But John, an apostle, could. Remember chapter 1, verse 1. He says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we've seen with our eyes, which we've looked upon and touched with our hands, concerning the word of life. 
He's talking about himself and his fellow apostles. They saw Jesus. They experienced his teaching firsthand. They touched him. They spent time with him. It's a claim to apostleship. He is one of only a few men chosen by God to relay the truth of the gospel to the church and to the world. The apostles wrote down what they saw and heard and experienced so that we could have the right teaching about Christ and his mission. Jesus gave his apostles the authority to do this, and he didn't give it to anybody else. So when John says, we are from God, and whoever knows God listens to us, he's talking about himself and the rest of the apostles. And through the leading of the Holy Spirit, again, the apostles wrote down exactly what God wanted the church to have for centuries in order to understand him more, to understand the gospel, and to lead godly lives. The scriptures are the story of God and his plan for redemption. And because the New Testament is the teaching of the apostles, they alone are the standard. They are the ultimate authority. That's why as Protestants we proclaim sola scriptura, scripture alone. All teaching should be measured against the scriptures. Those who have the spirit of error teach things out of line with the word of God. The spirit of error is opposed to the word of God. They teach what aligns with the world. That's why in verse 5, we're told the world listens to them. The world doesn't listen to the scriptures. The world doesn't align themselves with the teaching of the apostles. So John can say that we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error by whether or not teachers listen to and align their teaching with the apostles, the scriptures. And we can do the same today. There are many popular teachers out there who claim to be Christians. And they reject certain parts of the scriptures because they seem outdated. They seem out of step with the world. And these false teachers prioritize gaining a following from the world rather than aligning their lives with God's word. And there will always be an audience to find. It's much easier to tell your people what they want to hear rather than speak the truth of God's word. And it's a constant temptation. It's a constant temptation for teachers of God's word. How many men and women do you know how many men and women have fallen prey to false teachers who only tell their people what they want to hear? And the problem is there's so many opinions and ideas out there that you can really create a, a niche for yourself in different churches or different audiences with all these different worldviews, right? There are those who trade the gospel of repentance for the worldly idea that sin doesn't really matter. And that God is just loving and wants you to be yourself. And they teach that we should ignore the parts of Scripture that call us to repentance and holiness. There are those who pander to the angry. They teach that the gospel is nothing more than making the world a better place through political action. Their churches look like political rallies. And their pastors are no different than politicians. We see examples of this on both the right and the left. They've traded the gospel for anger and for an us versus them mentality. 
and they've lost the gospel of love and grace for all people. And they only focus on their group. And the false teachers that John are dealing with are no different. They have found a teaching that is less offensive to the world and they've determined that trading the gospel for success is worth it. But they've lost their souls. It's really tragic to see these movements and to realize that they stand outside the household of God. It's very sad. They've lost sight of the true Jesus and they've lost out on a relationship with the Holy Spirit. For what? For the world's goods. And they need the gospel of Jesus Christ, the incarnate. They need the spirit of truth. And we have been charged with bringing it to them. The Evangelical Free Church of America is a great movement. Uh, and it has direct ties to the Reformation. The history of the EFCA is fascinating. We stand in a direct line to the apostles. And we prioritize right teaching, which leads to right living. You can draw a line from our movement to Paul. But there are many churches in our surrounding area, especially in Lakeland, that believe the word of God. Praise the Lord. So I don't want you to think that only our church or only our denomination has, has held on to the gospel. You really should be careful of people who claim that. I'm not saying that at all. But we should be comforted today. We should know that we stand in line where we should be. We hold to the teaching of the apostles. We believe that Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man. And we do our best. Now I'm saying this as the pastor of this church. And so maybe this isn't true of you, but I'd like it to be. We do our best to align our lives with God's word. So leave comforted today as I'm sure John's congregation would have been comforted by this passage. We have the right confession of Jesus. That's not a prideful thing to say. We have it. We have the right alignment with the scriptures. Again, not a prideful statement. We have them. But let's not get lazy. We could lose it. Let's make sure that that continues to be the case, that we prioritize what we believe and we prioritize the message of the gospel to the unsaved. I would encourage you this week to do a little bit more investigation. Maybe you've never looked into this stuff about Jesus in a deeper sense. You should. You should find something that teaches you about the right belief of Jesus. There's many things that you can read. Again, we've got 2,000 years of history and theology to learn from that are great and beneficial to our spiritual lives. But it can't just remain in the head I mean, the first thing I'd charge you with is to get a little bit more head knowledge. It's not a bad thing to have. Know about God. Jesus said eternal life is to know God. Okay, so that's a good thing. But if it just remains up here, knowledge puffs up. When we learn about Jesus, we learn about how great he is and how good God is. That should overflow and spill out into the world. Not just toward love for one another, of course, that's implied. But love for the world a heart for the lost, evangelism, because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. You have victory now. So investigate Jesus Christ more this week.
And ask the Lord to bring you someone to share it with. Specifically, ask, write somebody down in your bulletin today who comes to mind as we pray who the Lord is asking you to share the gospel with. That is the heart of the Reformation. And if all of this is new to you, if you've never had an encounter with Jesus Christ, then I'd call you to place your faith in him today. Repent and believe the gospel, the glorious gem of our faith. That Jesus Christ, God incarnate, came to earth and died on the cross as our substitute for our sins and for our unbelief. And confess that he rose from the grave. Let's pray. Ask the Lord to put somebody on your heart. And again, if you've never believed the gospel, take a moment to confess your sins and just say this, Lord Jesus, I believe you. Let's take a moment. God, who do you want us to bring your gospel of grace to this week, Lord? Who is it that needs to hear the good news of Jesus Christ, fully God and fully man, going to the cross as our substitute? Maybe it's somebody at work. Maybe it's a family member. Or maybe we don't know who it is, but it's going to be a random encounter we have this week. I pray that it would be clear that you would give us somebody Lord, because your good news is for all people, and you are going to save people from all nations, languages, and tongues, and we are excited for that, that we can participate with you. So we pray that you would give us that person. We pray that you would give us a hunger for your word, knowing that it is the final, ultimate authority over life and doctrine. We pray that we would desire it more than anything, to know you. And Lord, if there's areas of our lives we've been lazy in with knowledge of you, we pray that you would help us to hunger for it and to, to seek out books and, and helpful, uh, helpful teaching about who you are because we stand in line as we celebrate today with many Christians over thousands of years. Thank you, Lord, for that. Lord, we do confess our sin to you today. We don't always believe rightly. We constantly get it wrong. We ignore the people you send to us. We repent of that. We pray that we would be your hands and feet this week. In Jesus' name, amen.